Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 142 of the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today on the show, we've got Jill Raderstorff joining us, and today Jill is a partner over at the Ohio Innovation Fund, and before that, she spent some time with the FDIC as well as Chase Bank. She's also a former Buckeye, where she got her MBA from the Fisher College of Business. We're really excited to have her here on the show. We definitely think she's got a lot to share and a great story, so I hope you guys enjoy this episode. And as always, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that, though, we want to take a quick moment to thank some of our sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest-growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored-fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent, through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state, and you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our last sponsor is Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus, and their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is smallbizcares.org. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get, you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Today on the show, we've got Jill Raderstorff joining us, and she's a partner at the Ohio Innovation Fund. And Jill began her career as a risk management examiner with the Federal Deposit Insurance Company, or Corporation, sorry, otherwise known as the FDIC leading risk management examinations of banks ranging from $100 million to over $1 billion in asset size. 
And she then shifted into the private sector as a senior underwriter at JP Morgan Private Bank. In this role, she managed a $3 billion consumer loan portfolio supported by hedge fund assets and fine art, and she earned a BSBA magna cum laude from Creighton University and an MBA through The Ohio State University Fisher College of Business. And today she works to seek out new investment opportunities for the fund, as well as support the fund's portfolio companies. We're really excited to have her here on the show. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Jill. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, and thanks for uh, taking the time to sit down and tell your story here in the evening. And generally where we like to start is just take us back a little bit before you came to the Ohio Innovation Fund and all the things that led up to that role. Uh, maybe any key roles, key places in your story from childhood all the way up to today. Yeah, so I have kind of a fairly middle class upbringing. I was born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, when I was thinking back about these questions, I thought a lot about kind of my family dynamics growing up. You know, I had very traditional roles in my family. My mom was a nurse. My aunts were all nurses. My grandmothers were all stay-at-home moms. Um, and my grandfathers and my father all owned their own businesses. And that's kind of how I grew up. I, I grew up very, again, very traditional background. Um, but I did always appreciate having my, my parents around. Um, my mom had a pretty flexible work schedule, and my dad did as well with his, with his own business. So they were pretty heavily involved in my life. Pretty, again, traditional upbringing. I have four brothers, so that influenced my career path a lot, I think, because I've always been kind of interested in what would be more traditional male-dominated roles um, and industries. And I think it's because I had four brothers <laughs> beating up on me my entire uh, upbringing. Uh, but yeah, so I went to school at Creighton University. Uh, that's where I started out, which is in Omaha. It's a Jesuit university there. And I went there because um, I was really interested in getting out of my comfort zone, which is kind of funny because I stayed in Omaha for, for my undergrad experience. But I, was, I wasn't ready to leave my family necessarily. There were a lot of things going on at that time that um, caused me to stay at home. But I lived on campus, I lived downtown. I grew up in the Burbs and I moved downtown. And it was a huge difference. And um, I loved Creighton, it was a great experience. I knew I wanted to get into business. Again, I, for whatever reason, I did not want to go down kind of those traditional, at the time, female roles. And knew I wanted to get into business, didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I was always interested in numbers. Um, I remember actually charging, trying to charge my little brother interest when he owed me some money once. It took me too, it took him too long to pay me. So I think about that, and I think about like, I remember when I was I think 12 years old, I made my mom take me to the bank so I could open up my first certificate of deposit, which you know I don't even think she knew what that was at the time. So it's always finance has always been interesting to me, and so I'm not surprised that this is you know the path that my life has taken. Uh, but at Creighton, I studied economics and Spanish. I dual majored um, because. One, I really wanted to get that business degree, but I also loved traveling. So I found out that you could study abroad and see lots of cool places for pretty um, inexpensive ways. And so I did that and ended up double majoring as a result. Um, and then I took my first job with the FDIC out of college. So kind of long story short, actually, I, I was supposed to move to Chicago and work for a bank, LaSalle Bank of Chicago. Um, I had the job offer lined up my senior year before Christmas break had signed the dotted line, and I actually went and worked at a summer camp for um, the summer after I graduated. And halfway through that experience, I got a call that the bank that I had been contracted to work for had just been bought out by Bank of America. So my job had been eliminated. 
and um, they actually gave me a two-month severance package. So I took the deal and went and did some volunteer work, and while I was doing that, thought, hey, I should probably find a job, right? I need something to, to fall back on, and interviewed actually for the FDIC while I was abroad in Honduras. So I did a phone interview and got an offer to move to Columbus, Ohio, because apparently nobody at the time in 2007 really wanted to move to Columbus, Ohio. Uh, and so I started in 08 with the FDIC and um, was you know, fortunate for my career and unfortunate for the world. That was the start of the Great Recession uh, and really got a deep dive into um, really with the mission of the FDIC because the, the year I started there was the year that all the banks started failing. And what exactly was their mission? Like dive into the, to what you were doing on a daily basis that kind of helped grow your career through that portion of your life. Yeah, so um, the, the mission of the FDIC is obviously to, to protect depositors' insurance, right? Or protect depositors' money through insurance. So they are an insurance company for, for deposits. At the FDIC, I started out in this corporate employee program, which is where you rotate through the different facets of the business. And again, 2008, summer of 2008, I think the first bank that failed was IndyMac out of California. I was actually in the FDIC's resolutions and receiverships division, the, the division that takes over failed banks. Um, so got a really kind of eye-opening experience doing some depositor phone calls where we were making insurance determinations. And um, a woman called me, she was about 76 years old, and she had put her entire life savings into IndyMac Bank. And eventually, I think, you know, they ended up getting back about 85% of their deposits. But, you know, walking her through that process and having her be so grateful to me that she had someone to talk to about it, um, she was so grateful and gracious. And that really had a huge impact on me early on in my career. I was 22 years old, so. Did you know at that point as that first bank failed, like what was unfolding? Did you, with your background in economics and the insight into finance, did you understand what was happening or? Yeah, I did actually. I had a professor, an econ professor in at Creighton, and he, I remember him saying this to us as we were seniors. He's like, you guys will be okay. You'll get jobs, but the, the kids who graduate the year after you, they're going to really struggle to find work. And that stuck with me. And um, yeah, through the, through the crisis, I mean, getting a kind of, you know, front row view was pretty eye-opening and astonishing. Um, I was very grateful for my job at the FDIC because I had a lot of friends who did lose their jobs that year, uh, be, being kind of the, the first in, first out. But for my career, it was really interesting because I was working alongside people who had been with the FDIC for 20 plus years who had never seen anything like this. So we were all learning together and I got very, very firsthand view and um, you know roles in all of these really troubling times for banks. You know, we were having really challenging conversations with the management teams um, throughout that whole process. Then how many years are you there before you decide to make your next kind of pivot? Yeah, so I was with the FDIC for about six and a half years, and I had started thinking about wanting to change um, probably about five years in, and that was partially because I traveled all the time. They, you travel about 70 to 80% of the time as a bank examiner, and that's just really taxing on your life. Um, and then I, I knew I wanted to continue my learning curve, and things had started to improve in the banking environment, so you learn less as there are less problems. And so I wanted to continue to learn, and I, I felt like my time had come to, to make the move. So at about six and a half years, I was able to get a position at J.P. Morgan in their private bank. Um, but at the time, I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. So I was applying for jobs, and I was applying for grad school at the same time. And in the same week that I quit my job at the FDIC and accepted a role 
at JP Morgan, I got a call and got an offer to join the MBA program at Ohio State. So um, that's kind of how life works, right? It all mm -hmm. happens at once. So um, I switched over to JP Morgan, and that was a really great opportunity because uh, the MBA program at OSU, I did the working professionals program at night, and you have to be present for class. So I could not have done the WP MBA program while I was a bank examiner because I wouldn't have been able to be in classes. And so um, it was a lot to kind of take on a new role and school all at the same time, but it, it worked out. So yeah, there's a lot to balance there, I'm sure. Is I mean, I've seen Josh's days here at the office. He's uh, working constantly in, in a similar position. He's doing like a night thing, but he's going to a school we won't mention. Um, <laughs> But what was that like for you? Was there a lot of balance there? Was there a lot of late nights? I mean, I guess I'm sure there were, but how did you find a way to kind of grind through that? Yeah, so I just have to like give a shout out to anybody who does a night class because for people who spend, you know, eight to ten hours a day in their day job and then they voluntarily show up on campus at six o'clock at night for to sit in a three-hour lecture that ends at 9.30, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. You have to really want to do that um, and not a lot of people do and um, I was lucky that I started before I had children because I think I would have never <laughs> signed up for that if I had had kids at the time but there were so many people balancing families and work and school and again you know to spend your Saturday studying when you could be outside doing something else like your life doesn't stop while you're going to school. So I, I have great respect for everybody who does it. And I was really glad I got offers to do both the full-time program at Fisher as well as the WP MBA program. And I made the conscious decision to do the night class. And I'm so glad that I did because I've, I've met such a great group of peers uh, that I actually still keep in touch with today. And, I, and now in my role at OIF, I get to run into a lot of people. And I also get to connect people who are still maybe doing the work that they were doing when they started the grad school role but are looking to get into something different I can help them through that process because it's not an easy transition to jump from you know the corporate world over to the entrepreneurial environment uh, it can be scary and having somebody that you know to, to kind of not even hold your hand but just to grab a drink with you and tell you how to do it mm -hmm. is really helpful for people do you have a focus as you're going through the program or is the part-time just all the general MBA? Is that how that works? Yeah, so the part-time, you don't actually have to declare a focus at Fisher, um, but you can strategize all your electives to be in a certain focus area. So I have a very finance-heavy background and I love finance. So I knew I wanted to stay in finance. I just wasn't sure where I wanted to go. I knew I wanted to find work that was more meaningful than what I had been doing in the past, which was quite frankly, still pretty meaningful work just in a corporate setting. Uh, but I knew I wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. I knew I wanted to do something different. So I stayed really focused on finance and I also tried to um, tried to play off of my strengths, but then also you know expand upon some of the weaker areas. So I wanted to take a lot of strategy classes. I took some entrepreneurship classes and I took a lot of communications classes because if I learned anything about um, the business world and the MBA program, it's that communication is critical to almost everything that we do. So I thought that was really important. When I think about the roles that I've had in my past to bring me to my role here at OIF, I really do attribute the communication skills I developed along the way in being useful for that because, you know, the FDIC, again, at a very young age, speaking to C-suite executives about, you know, I actually had a president who sat down with me and I had to tell him that his bank was, you know, about six months away from failure. And I remember he, after the, that meeting, he stopped me and said, you know, thank you so much 
for being kind while you were delivering that information because it, it's really hard information to hear. I knew I was going to hear it, but you, you were able to tell me it in a way that I could actually listen to you while you were saying it. And that's, that stuck with me. And, um, you know, we all have tough conversations that we have to have, whether that's with our coworkers or, uh, our clients and being able to do it in a way that's respectful, but get the information across so that they don't forget what you say, what you're saying to them or what you're trying to convey is really, really, a huge skill. So you're spending your time at JP Morgan, you're doing school part-time. How long does the program take you? And then at what point do you decide that JP Morgan is in the right fit? Yeah. So I have a little bit of a, you know, bump in the road, if you will, or a change in my path. No one's career path is, is linear. Um, so when I was at JP Morgan, I was running this, this consumer loan portfolio that I had adopted from our New York office. Um, and I found out I was pregnant with twins. So I was working at JP Morgan, building this team around this portfolio, pregnant with twins, going to school part-time at night, and I thought I could juggle it all. And I realized very quickly that I could not. Um, and at, when my, my, my kids arrived, I had to stop working at JP Morgan in order to take care of them, take care of myself, and finish the MBA program. We, I realized that something I had to give, and so I wanted to focus, I wanted to finish the MBA. I was like halfway through it. So it took about three and a half years for me to finish the program. Uh, I did extend a little bit. I took a semester off uh, when I had my kids and then I started to slow my classes down a little bit just so that I could get through them. Um, not, and not just get through them, actually enjoy the experience and really learn something from it. And so it took about three and a half years. During that time, I actually found the opportunity with Ohio Innovation Fund. So Fisher has a program called the Wheeler Internship Program for graduate students where they offer uh, positions at companies that are entrepreneurial focused. And OIF was one of those companies. And so I threw my name in the hat thinking, who gets a chance to work in venture capital, right? Like when I was at JP Morgan, I was working with a lot of hedge funds and a lot of private equity funds. So I learned more about the fund dynamics and um, I always thought that I would go into like real estate or something like that, but this venture capital opportunity came about and I was really intrigued. I learned again about it through JP Morgan as well as at the MBA program and was really, really excited about it. So I, I put in my name in and I got the opportunity to do it. And uh, Bill Baumel, our managing director, gave me the offer for the summer and I took it. And it was a great opportunity for me to kind of step back into the workforce after being out for a little bit and test my skills, figure, figure out if this was the right fit for me. And within a few weeks, um, I think I was offered a permanent role and I accepted without hesitation. Yeah, and we had the opportunity to sit down with Bill on the show um, not too long ago, maybe a couple months back now, and his experiences are probably incredible. I mean, not probably, they are incredible from what he talked us through. So how, what's it been like working with him and kind of learning from his different insights, spending yeah. out in Silicon Valley and then coming back here? Has that been... Um, helpful for you and your time with the fund so far? Yes. Yeah. I mean, again, part of the reason why I, I was intrigued by the opportunity in general was to be able to work with Bill. So I feel honored to be a part of that and to be able to have somebody that has such a great experience and, and vast wealth of knowledge to learn from myself. Uh, because, you know, I, I have a lot of strengths in like the financial analysis and the due diligence, et cetera. But I'm used to looking at things from a historical perspective, right? So it's, it's very different to look at historical data and project future 
returns. When you're in this world of uh, startups, you know, we, 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 we're looking at future projections and we have to base our decisions off of that. So he's been really helpful and instrumental in helping me recalibrate the way I look at things and how to approach things when, when we don't have all the answers like you would with a typical investment of like say a private equity deal or a hedge fund deal. Um, so yeah, it's been great. And Bill is just, he's got such a, a vision for what he wants for OIF. And that's also a big part of why I wanted to do this. You know, when I started, OIF was about 12 months into their formation, and I really wanted that startup experience. So being a part of being able to build something that is going to hopefully outlast and outgrow the two of us is, is really exciting. And, and we wear a lot of hats, and every day looks very different from the day before, but I think we approach it with a, a can-do attitude and really try our best every day to just bring, bring our best game every single day. So what does that day look like? What does your day-to-day -day look like right now? You say you wear a lot of hats, and I know we talked a little bit about bills. I'm guessing it's probably something similar, but I'd love to hear what you guys are doing, or what you're doing specifically on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, so my day-to-day -day is very different every day, and you know what I do now looks vastly different from what I was doing even a year ago in my role, but as partner in the fund, um, I really head all of our due diligence efforts, so I'm looking at new investments uh, very consistently. Um, I spend probably 60% of my time doing that kind of work of just prospecting, meeting entrepreneurs, digging into decks, digging into financials, those kinds of things. Um, I spend a lot of my time on our portfolio management activities as well. So, you know, forecasting what our returns are gonna look like, trying to project and predict how much money our companies are gonna need and at what points in their future paths they're gonna need those funding rounds. Um, and then I also manage our student experience program, which is something that we've really developed over the last year or two. Um, we've, we realize there's, there's this huge desire in the state and probably the Midwest to learn more about venture capital and learn more about this process. So we actually offer internships for students, um, both at the undergraduate and graduate level during the school year and during the summer. And then we also offer one day shadow experiences. So I take two to four students a month that come and spend about a day with us that learn, really get a really intense kind of experience on one particular aspect of venture capital. And it's really cool for the students because they can ask whatever questions they want. They spend all their time with myself or Bill and um, they're able to, to, to look at live deals. So we're really kind of opening up the curtain in terms of how we do things. And I think people really appreciate that. And we think that's really important because we believe part of our mission is to train the next generation of entrepreneurs and investors here in Ohio because if we're going to make Ohio the next center of industry, whatever that industry may be, it's not it's not going to take just one person. It's going to take a lot of people. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of money. And the more that we can create that cycle early on, um, we're, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, and venture capital is so interesting to me because it's, it's been around for a decent amount of time. I've, I've heard about VCs that are around in the 70s and 80s and things like that, mm -hmm. but it's really just starting to kind of hit the spotlight, I guess, maybe with the startup ecosystem continuing to blossom and um, all these funds raising more and more capital. And then maybe coming to the Midwest helps and, and raise the spotlight over here. Mm -hmm. But it's like still mysterious a little bit and it's kind of sleek and a lot of people want to get involved. But they know it's very tough. Yeah. So it's cool that they get the opportunity to kind of see that firsthand and get that experience and jump in. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned a little bit, though, regarding finance being past looking and then when you're investing in these doing the forward looking aspect mm -hmm. did you have a learning curve going into some of these companies that you're evaluating that are only at maybe a million dollars in revenue and their business models like SaaS or whatever the different business models are that you're working with like for us i know here at fmx 
the metrics that we focus on that determine our value are really not really based on financial metrics like you look at a private equity. It's based on our churn rate and our, um, I don't know, like 10 or other metrics that are just really random to me. Yeah. So what was that like for you to kind of understand these different business models and learn how to evaluate them? Yeah, so venture capital is still very much a, like a, a craft, right? It, you really need to go through the experience to learn. And we always talk about that, that it's it's an art, it's not a science. So yeah, there is this quantitative portion of what we do, but so much of it is qualitative. And you know, the management team plays a huge factor into things. And like you said, there are metrics that exist in the startup, startup ecosystem that don't exist for other businesses. And that's because if you don't have consistent revenues or you're not sure what your revenues are gonna look like, you have to have other metrics to prove progress and prove growth, right? So um, there was a learning curve, uh, definitely. I think I learned something new every day, which is why I like what I do, because every single day I'm challenged to learn something different, right? We're, we're industry agnostic, so in any given day I could be looking at a med tech deal and then the next day looking at an enterprise SaaS business deal, you know? so. So you have to be on your toes all the time. Yeah, so I, I don't know how to best say that other than every day I'm probably Googling something to try and figure out what acronym means what. <laughs> what do you think you focus on when you look at business deals today that uh, really means the most to you? Is it, is it year over year revenue growth? Is it the management team? Um, do you do a lot of research on the actual industry and the market size? Yeah, so it definitely depends on the stage of the deal. We, we tend to focus on Series A at OIF, but we will look at earlier deals. So you know, some of the companies that we're looking at are pre-revenue. So you, can't even, you don't even have a year over year revenue growth metric to, to model off of, or you may have one, maybe two years of revenue, right? So nothing, nothing really substantial enough to use as just the, the, that, that primary indicator. But we'll look at various different things. Market size is huge, right? It has to have a big enough market opportunity for us to be interested because in order for us to get the outsized returns that we're looking for, there has to be a huge market um, or at least a sizable enough market, right? And then the value prop is really what drives a lot of our interest, at least initially, right? If you're um, an entrepreneur, it's one, it's really hard in today's world to get your message across because there are so many channels and so many players, right? No matter what industry you're in. So if you can't really clearly define your value proposition, you're never gonna be able to sell your 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 goods to the customer that you're looking for because they don't know what you're doing. And so as an investor, I need to understand your value prop because I need to be intrigued right away because that is what's going to get me interested in opening that deck and starting to do that research because it takes a long time to diligence a company. You know, we'll look at companies oftentimes for a few months before we can have enough information to make those decisions. But to your question, I look at, you know, the size of the market, the opportunity, the, the team that's been built. If there are revenues, I want to know, you know, as much as I can about their pipeline about what they're thinking for future, what their strategy is in terms of revenue generation. I'm also really interested in the forecast because that is kind of my nature is to look at the financials. But I know the forecasts are wrong, right? We all know that, that's a part of this world. But what I really wanna know is are your assumptions realistic? If I can understand your approach to how you're building your forecast and what you think is gonna happen, and your assumptions that build your forecast match the strategy that you're telling me, you know, one-on-one, -on -one, that really helps me give a lot more confidence in the business plan that you're creating for yourself. Um, other things we look at, obviously, are competition. Uh, we're really here to grow companies in Ohio, so we have to 
we have to look at every deal like that, but obviously we are, we're not, you know, this a silo, right? So people are building businesses all across the world that are trying to solve these exact same problems that we're trying to solve here. So really understanding how the companies that we're investing in have in unique value propositions, they're solving the problems in a way that's unique to the competition and that their positions are defensible, right? Whether that be through IP or through just these barriers to entry that have been created through the industry or through the expertise of the team, whatever that might be, those are the kind of things that we're looking for when we make our investments. And it's interesting that you mentioned that. So how do you how do you balance that? Because you know, you would you might say that when you're focusing on a certain area like Ohio, you're leaving out a lot of potential other companies and maybe there's competition out there that would be better to invest in. How do you balance that that I guess what the word I'd be looking for is it's not a conundrum. I'm trying to figure dynamic. Out. Dynamic. I'm a man. Of, a I'm one. a man of words. Josh coming in with the words. <laughs> uh, how do you balance that dynamic? Because you know, as a fund, like your goal is to eventually make money, right? Right. So, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So it is. It is hard. It's a challenge that we have to. We have to balance. Is in exactly what you're saying. And there's. It's hard for us because we we are really focused on Ohio, and luckily we have the right size fund to be able to do that right now, and we've been able to have a pretty sizable pipeline of really good, strong investments to look from. Uh, but yeah, we we can't again think that we're the only ones that are you know asking these same questions. So that's where the the market analysis piece comes in, where you have to, you have to be aware of the competition that exists. One thing I will say. You know, while we, I think we struggle in the Midwest because we have a little bit less access to capital, we know that's a problem, right? Capital access. However, I think a lot of our companies, at least in our own portfolio, are more capital efficient because of that situation. And so oftentimes there, there is an ability to be nimble when you have less capital stacked on top there. Um, you have to be just a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more decisive and you don't have as many you don't have as much room for error, so that's why we're really trying to pick the best of the best because um, we know it's tough. Like, it's tough no matter where you are to build a business and grow a business, but it's definitely tougher here. <laughs> and you talked about the right size of the fund, so would you mind talking a little bit about the dynamics of venture capital, especially the rates to you guys? Like, I'm assuming, and I could be totally off here, but the more money you raise, you have to deploy that capital, and then if you're only deploying in Ohio, it can be kind of difficult. Your shareholders want to return. Right. So what does it look like for you guys in terms of companies that you look to invest in? And then I read an article the other day that was talking about how, you know, some companies need jet fuel and they want venture capital and some companies don't. So anything regarding that that kind of strikes feelings with you or that you have thoughts on? Yeah. So we just, we definitely have to manage, you have to, all venture funds have to manage the check size that they're willing to write in the fund opportunity, in the opportunity of the company, right? So um, looking at the valuation, understanding how much money they're trying to raise and how much money it's going to take for them to get to where they're going. So I would never say that it negates us from an investment opportunity to, or we're never limited or constricted by it, but it helps us understand what the risks are when we're making investments. If, if we think a company has a really aggressive plan and they don't have the kind of the capital armor, army that they need you know in their syndicate that's that's a risk that we note and we acknowledge and we make our decisions knowing that those risks exist whether we decide to invest or not um, so yeah you have to as a, as a company I, I had a company the other day that was asking me they want to raise you know a series b and I, I won't say 
what their valuation is. They're not, they're not based here in Ohio. It was just a conversation I was having with a, a friend. But you know, the size of check that they were looking for and the valuation that they had, had suggested, I had to just explain to them that those two numbers don't match, right? Because if you have a really high valuation, the person that can afford to invest in your company, the VC that's going to invest in that needs to deploy a large check, right? So you'd again, think about that as an entrepreneur. How much money do I need to raise? What does my valuation look like at that? And do those all make sense? Are there apprehensions when you go to the table with the company, you're excited about the deal, you're excited about the team and the market, but they might not want to grow as fast as you need to to make the returns. Is there ever those conversations? Yeah, that's something that you know we we find some challenges here in the state is is really changing that mindset, both of the entrepreneur and sometimes of the investor or the the board that's surrounding the company. Um, you know, we really really press our companies to think big because I think that is something that uh, we do here in the Midwest that's probably a little bit different from from the coast is is being less aggressive in our in our goals um, and or more conservative, however you wanna wanna say it. Um, so we, we definitely have found ourselves being the, the voice saying, let's let's try this, let's do this, let's let's you know, why why one million next year? Why can't we do four million next year? Or whatever that number may be, we're definitely pushing our founders and CEOs to think big and think about how they can attack a really large goal. Is shortage of capital um, any dilemma in achieving those goals? Because, I mean, if you want to grow at the same speed that Silicon Valley companies are growing, but obviously they have a massive talent pool out there, are we facing difficulties here in Columbus, or is that not a case? Yeah, I mean, I think access to capital always is a challenge, right? Or it is a challenge right now for the Midwest. Hopefully we can change that, and we're, we're working to do that. That's part of our goal is to help bring more you know, syndicated money and dollars to the Midwest with the work that we're doing. Um, but, but honestly, what I think is really interesting is to hear people who aren't in the Midwest asking questions about what's going on here. So I've had that happen to me a lot in the last six to eight months where people who are in the tech space on the coast are you know, LinkedIn messaging me or calling me friends of friends, you know, just wanting to know what, what the scene looks like here. And they moved away 10 years ago, but they're kind of getting the itch to move back. Is there a job out there for them? Is there interesting work being done here? And I can say the answer is yes, definitely. Um, you know, one of our portfolio companies, Wiretap, they had a couple of interns from MIT that decided to join wiretap for a summer rather than go to the Googles and Facebooks of the world. And so, so we're able, we're, we're doing interesting stuff here and we're able to attract people despite, uh, maybe some of the, the things that people would consider to be hindrances by, by putting a startup in the Midwest versus the coast. It's funny. I've had exact same conversations with probably two or three people in the last month that moved away to Chicago or New York city and they wanted to spend some time there. And now they're like starting families and they realize you know, everything that Columbus has to provide. They were here originally anyways. Right. So they realized the value of the city, but now they want to move back. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting to me to see that dynamic and how the city's going to continue to grow and what type of talent we'll have. You know, people later in their careers, how will that affect the companies yeah. that we have? Yeah. What do you think the biggest challenges will be for us growing and moving forward? And, you know, maybe that's a lot of different things, right? There's plenty that can be encompassed in all of those things, but what do you, what do you see being the single you know a couple of the single factors that would really push us mm -hmm. yeah 
I mean, visibility, I think, is something that we're getting better at, but it's still always necessary, right? I think people are starting to see Columbus and recognize it for, you know, the, the ecosystem that we're developing, but that's always going to be a, a thing that we're going to need to continue to work on. Capital access, you know, everybody harps on that, but that is still a factor, right? We need more co-investments. We need more people willing to invest alongside the venture firms that are located here in order to grow grow our companies and we need more exits right mm-hmm. uh, we've had a couple pretty good ones in the last year in the state of Ohio and in the last few years but we need a few more and um, we're getting there and you can see it happening again I look at our own portfolio and we had three or four of our portfolio companies raise series B's last year and they were successful in bringing outside capital strategic money in um, we've seen our portfolio companies you know open up job openings and have multiple multiple applications for one you know one position and so that shows the interest in the work that they're doing and the partnerships that we're creating you know we have partnerships with Facebook and Microsoft and um, all different Sanofi all different kinds of companies across different industries when you start getting those kind of industry leaders showing recognition about the work that the the companies here are doing those are all the types of spotlights that we need to really make this um, ecosystem stronger and when you guys invest in a series a round with a company then they raise like a series b will you guys jump in on that or what does that dynamic look like for you and what does the conversation look like so yes we do invest in series b rounds typically we will invest in the series b round after we've already invested in prior rounds with follow-on funding so when we make an initial investment we always reserve what we believe to be is an adequate amount of capital to protect our investment as well as support the company as they grow through their through their um, funding rounds so that's part of the initial due diligence is trying to understand what their capital needs are going to look like into the future and to make sure that we can manage that appropriately for the fund as well as the company does that separate you guys from private equity i mean those i know there's a lot of uh, different variables there between venture capital and private equity but I'd never heard of private equity firms reserving the capital to go. Usually it's just like one deployment. Is that right? Or am I totally off by that? Yeah. So I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in private equity, but um, from my understanding, the difference between venture and private equity, one is the, the timing of the deal, right? So venture is obviously much more earlier stage than private equity. And private equity generally wants to come in and take a, a sizable ownership, a, a, a controlling interest in the company where we don't really have an interest in that. We generally would like to take a board seat or an observer position so that we can help influence the strategy of the company in a way that we think is best for the company and the shareholders. Um, whereas private equity will come in to a deal that you know, they're, they're coming in when a company is, has grown to a level, a sufficient size that, that it's a it's an ongoing entity. There is no kind of question about the business that they're building, but they'll come in and actually, you know, kind of run through the ranks and create efficiencies in the ways that they think are best for the company and, and really drive value that way. Um, but if you look at, you know, the difference between kind of venture capital returns and the, the spectrum that they fall on from, you know, not returning any capital or negative returns or really, really positive returns are your bottom and top quartile. Whereas private equity, like great private equity funds, you know, return 12 or 13% and mediocre private equity funds return eight or 9%. So there's just a different risk spectrum because they're coming in at a much later stage. Um, and just, again, creating efficiencies to drive value versus creating a strategy to drive value, which is what we do in the venture space. Perfect. Well, I think that's a good place to kind of pivot towards one of our last questions of the show, Jill, yeah. and it's centered around the theme here on Conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. Yeah. And 
without telling you too much about why we chose that, what do you think of when you hear the phrase, how do you apply it to your life and career? Yeah, so um, I love the phrase. I think it's great that that's the theme of the show. Live uncomfortably. One thing when I accepted this offer to, to join you tonight, um, I, I was thinking of, it says, stuck with me. A few months ago, I got the chance to hear a student at OSU present, and he ma made the comment that growth and comfort cannot coexist. And that has really stuck with me since I heard it. And, you know, I've been uncomfortable a lot in, in roles in both previously and in OIF. And when you frame it with that lens that growth and comfort cannot coexist, you know that even if you're uncomfortable, that's a, that's a positive. That means you're growing. That means you're learning. That means you're changing. Um, and so I definitely get less frustrated when I think of it like that. Um, and ways that I think that I live uncomfortably is to always question the status quo, right? People do things for various reasons, and oftentimes it's because that's what they know. They've seen someone else do it that way, so they're going to do it that way. So I think, I, I think in general, I live my life in a way that I always ask myself the question, am I doing something because other people have told me to do it, or am I doing it because I want to do it? And every time I ask that question, ask myself that question, I, I know I'm always going to find an answer that re resonates with my values, right, and live my life in my, by my own values. And so I think that's how I live uncomfortably, uh, and I would encourage everyone else to try and do that themselves. Well, Jill, thanks a lot for joining us on the podcast. That was a great answer. We really appreciate you taking the time to tell your story for our listeners. Thank you. And Conquerors, thanks for tuning in. That was Jill Raderstorff over at the Ohio Innovation Fund, and I hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you liked it, share it with your friends. Like us on iTunes. Wait a minute. Rate us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Hey, Conquerors, that's it for the episode today. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode and learned a lot. If you did, make sure to leave a like. Share us on Facebook with your friends. We really appreciate all your support. And every time you share our podcast or leave a review on iTunes, it really does help us out. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here. And that's going to start with FMX. FMX is a cloud-based facilities maintenance and management software founded and headquartered right here in Columbus, Ohio. There's a lot of competitors in this space, but FMX has made a name for itself, become the fastest growing facilities maintenance and management software on the market on behalf of its extreme ease of use and tailored fit approach to its clients. They serve industries ranging from education to property management, manufacturing, fast casual, and more. If you want to check out more, you can go to gofmx.com. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit helping connect entrepreneurs to everything they need, including investors, mentors, capital, and talent through business pitch events, workshops, and classes throughout the state. And you can get more information on the web at sundownrundown.org. And our last sponsor is Small Biz Cares. Small Biz Cares is a nonprofit founded by socially conscious community leaders here in Columbus. And their goal is to connect, mobilize, and inspire small businesses to create lasting positive impact in our community. And Small Biz Cares members have the unique opportunity to join like-minded businesses to raise money for great causes, participate in large-scale volunteer efforts, and improve educational opportunities for youth in our community. To get your small business involved or to learn more, visit smallbizcares.org. That is small, B-I-Z, cares, 
podcast.org. Finally, if you've ever wondered what it takes to start your own podcast, we're here to help. We're putting together a podcast startup package with our recommendations and some of the key lessons we learned over the past two years of podcasting. You can sign up by heading over to our website, conqueringcolumbus.com. And while you're there, don't forget to give us a like on Facebook and be sure to subscribe and share Conquering Columbus wherever you get your podcasts. If you could drop me anywhere on the planet, in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.